Bonjour, salut. Welcome to City Breaks Paris, episode 7, Montmartre. I guess there are two reasons really why most people go up to Montmartre. It's either to have a closer look at that lovely white church, the Sacré-Cœur, on the Paris skyline, or it's to sample a little bit of the artistic life, wander around the lovely Place du Tetre, think about how artists there in the 19th century lived and worked and later in many cases became famous, have a look at the cafes, think about the nightlife that used to be in the area, places like the Moulin Rouge and the Moulin de la Galette. And so that really gives me the shape for the episode. After a few words of general history, I'm going to look at the Sacré-Cœur, at the events that led to it being built in the first place, a little bit about what to see if you go and visit, and then in the second half of the podcast, move on to the idea of Montmartre as a rather bohemian centre of pleasure and entertainment, particularly in the late 19th century. Talk about some of the people who lived there, and a mention too of the lovely Musée de Montmartre, which you can visit if you want to see lots of pictures and find out lots more about the history of the area. So, briefly then, it's an area that used to be rural, outside the city, on a hill, somewhere people could look up to and think of as being outside the city. It was known as early as the 3rd century as Martyr's Hill, Mont the Hill, Martre the Martyrs, because of the story that we told in an earlier episode about Saint-Denis, the Bishop of Paris, being beheaded here and calmly picking up his head and walking two miles from his place of execution to Saint-Denis, where he founded the cathedral, which was later named after him, the Basilique Saint-Denis. By the early 19th century, it had become a place of work, somewhere with quarries and lots of plaster works, kilns everywhere, where the plaster that was made for the mouldings used on buildings all over the city came from. It was also a place, being high up, where lots of windmills were built. At one stage there were about 30 of them, dating from as early as the 16th and 17th centuries, places where flour was produced to be taken down into the city for Parisian bakers to bake into bread, somewhere where grapes were crushed, grapes grown actually in Montmartre in the vineyard there, which still exists today, and turned into wine, which was one of the reasons why the area became famous. Perhaps the best-known windmill is the Moulin de la Galette, Moulin being the French word for windmill. More about this one later, but it became famous because eventually it was turned into a bar and a dance hall in 1834, and that really was the beginning of the area as a place of entertainment. But in 1870, something really massive happened in Montmartre, which has left a mark on the area ever since. And that something came during the siege of Paris, when there were German troops all around the city. Parisians were starving. Parisians were very unimpressed with the way their own city government was dealing with this. And so the Commune was formed. And Montmartre really was one of the centres for that. So the Communards got together, they rejected the Treaty of Capitulation to Germany, and they very much wanted to protest against the life that Parisians were having forced on them at the time. They were starving to the point where history books tell us that most of the zoo animals were slaughtered and eaten. So short were people of anything to eat. We're told that Pollux the elephant was sacrificed in this way and that things like camel's kidneys were to be found on the menus in the restaurants in the main city. The writer Edmond Goncourt, writing in 1870, had something to say about this. He describes visiting a restaurant and asking to be served roast beef, and then he wrote the following about what arrived on his plate. My painter's eye noted that it was a dark red colour, very different from the pinky red of beef. 
The waiter could give me only a feeble assurance that this horse was beef. The communist demands included all kinds of things, setting up free schools, which everyone would be able to attend, a separation of church and state, they were very anti-religious, equal salaries for men and women, some things, in fact, that were really way ahead of their time. But it was a terrible period when the city was marked by violence and turbulence. Atrocities were committed by both sides. The communards, for example, took six clergymen hostage, including the Archbishop of Paris, and shot them. They dragged some 300 people out of the Madeleine Church in the city centre. People had gone in there to look for sanctuary, but they were dragged out and killed. And the city authorities wrecked a terrible revenge, culminating in a dreadful week known as La Semaine Sanglante, the Bloody Week, when it's said that up to a thousand corpses were piled up at the Trocadero, when groups of communards were lined up in barracks or railway stations or public squares and shot. One of the last battles took place in the Père Lachaise Cemetery, when over a hundred communards were lined up against a wall at the edge of the cemetery and shot. Still today, that wall is known as the Mur des Fédérés, and some of the bullet holes can still be seen in it. Montmartre was one of the very centres of all this unrest, a place where barricades went up in the streets and where many people lost their lives, and its reputation lingered for decades afterwards. Some fifty years later, Ernest Hemingway went to visit, and he wrote the following about men that he saw in the bars of Montmartre. Quote, they were the descendants of the communards, and it was no struggle for them to know their politics. They knew who had shot their fathers, their relatives, and their friends when the Versailles troops came in and took the town after the commune and executed anyone they could catch with calloused hands, or who wore a cap, or carried any other sign that he was a working man. And one of the things to come out of all of this was the Sacre Coeur Church, the Basilique de Montmartre, as it was called. It was decided just a few years after the uprising that a church should be built, something to represent the need for penitence to show a new start. It was paid for entirely by public donations, although it's only fair to say that it was controversial. Church authorities felt there was a need for a new church here. Many, many Parisians supported them and gladly donated their money, but some of the ex-communards were against it, didn't want a church built anywhere really, and called it a citadel of superstition. But as a building, it is absolutely a one-off. Because it was built by public donations, it was decided to have a public competition to encourage people to offer their ideas for how it should look. 78 designs were received, and the result was a church that was deemed, even at the time, to be very un-Parisian, not least because no other building in the city was white. But for this building, this particular white stone was brought up from the Seine-et-Marne region, for a church which was to be dedicated to the Sacré-Cœur, the Sacred Heart, that is, the Heart of Christ. And so strong was the idea that it should be an act of penitence, that it was decided that prayers would be said in this building, uninterrupted, 24 hours a day, something which continued, even, for example, during World War II, and which is still the case today. There were various delays in its construction, including, ironically enough, World War I, and so it was 1919 before it was actually consecrated. It's very much become a symbol of the city of Paris, being visible from so many places down the hill in the city itself, and being a popular outing for Parisians and, of course, the tourists, climbing up the 234 steps to the dome, and if you choose a clear day to go, you can enjoy from the top 
a view all over Paris, which stretches for 50 kilometres. If you decide to visit, particular things to see would include the bell tower, containing the world's largest swing bell, some 19 tonnes, which resonates with a deep middle sea, and inside, a wonderful mosaic entitled Christ in His Glory, with the inscription, To the Most Sacred Heart of Jesus. I'm sure some visitors go inside in search of the other statues like the Pieta, so Mary with the Dead Christ, or to have a look at the bronze plaque near the altar, which lists the names of all the priests from the church who died in World War I and World War II. I expect others climb the bell tower for an even better view of the city. But I think for many people, it remains that beautiful silhouette on the Paris skyline, something they think of as symbolising Paris, and which perhaps in many cases they walk past on their way to the square and the little streets further up the hill behind the church. From down in the city centre it certainly looks serene and peaceful. doesn't feel quite so peaceful when you get up there if you go at busy times, because it's teeming with people. And of course we mustn't forget that it represents quite a controversy. On the one hand, the Catholic Church were very keen for it to be built to atone for the sins, as they saw them, of the 1871 uprising. On the other hand, many non-religious people absolutely opposed it and were sticking with their anti-clerical communard ideas, including one Parisian with the surname of Villette who actually came to the inauguration ceremony specifically to shout out Vive le Diable, Long Live the Devil, as the ceremony was taking place. I think it's quite French that this protester has been given posterity because they've named the little square at the foot of the steps up to the church Place Villette after him. There was more trouble there in 1971, so a whole century after the end of the siege and the communal uprising, when demonstrators came to the church to protest that it had been built upon the bodies of the communards, as they put it. And I'm afraid to say that they met with some quite violent police who expelled them in no uncertain terms. But whichever side you're on, I think you really shouldn't miss a chance to visit Montmartre because it may well be said that from up there, what you definitely do get is the very best view of Paris, at least on a clear day. So that's the first reason for visiting Montmartre then, to see Sacré-Cœur or to see the view from the steps of Sacré-Cœur. And the second reason is to go in search of the artistic heritage of the area, particularly dating back to the late 1800s when suddenly the population of Montmartre exploded. It's said that in 1851 there were 6,000 people living there, and that by 1886 there were 200,000. Many came to live there, attracted by the low rents, the fresh air from just outside the city, the fact that it was becoming a place of entertainment with its cabarets and bars. It was a working-class area, for sure, but it was also a bohemian area. Sue Rowe, in her book In Montmartre, describes the population from the late 1800s as being made up of the following, quote, small tradesmen, entertainers, petty criminals, prostitutes and artists with varying degrees of talent. She describes how there were many people living there with proper jobs, if you will, seamstresses, laundresses, artisans, who lived in Montmartre because it was cheap and in many cases went down the hill to the city to work every day, leaving, as she puts it, quote, the painters in the lanes, sitting at their easels. She makes it clear that there was very much a seamy side to all of this too, writing, for example, of, quote, the whores with painted faces who strolled through the streets of Montmartre, their hair dyed blue-black. In the bars they sat waiting over a drink, leaning on their elbows, blatantly unchaperoned. 
Today, that word unchaperoned sounds faintly ridiculous, doesn't it? But if you know a painting like, for example, Picasso's The Absinthe Drinker, you will be able to picture the sort of down-at-heel, put-upon woman for whom life seemed to be really more drudgery than pleasure. That, perhaps, Suro had in mind. The area quickly became famous for some of the big-name bars and cafes and places of entertainment, which actually are names that we still know today. You may well be familiar with Le Chat Noir, for example, the Black Cat, perhaps from the Toulouse-Lautrec poster advertising it. Perhaps the Moulin de la Galette sounds familiar. There's a Renoir painting of that name. And surely everybody is familiar with the term Le Moulin Rouge, which translates as the Red Windmill, but is better known to us as a nightclub full of dancing girls and probably lots of drink, with, you feel, don't you, perhaps a rather seedy underbelly as well. In the area's heyday, one of the very famous bars was one called Le Lapin Agile, which means the Agile Rabbit, and which is still there today. It's the oldest cabaret opened there. It was known as a cabaret artistique and had, even at the time, a somewhat dubious reputation. You may be wondering why it's called the Lapin Agile. And the reason is because rabbit was very much on the menu there. People knew that it was a good place to eat that food. And it was a place where some down-at-heel up-and-coming painters used to go. And if they couldn't afford to pay for their food, they were allowed by the owner to do a painting instead. And one of them painted a sign which was eventually put outside the cabaret. And his design included a rabbit jumping out of a pot. And this caught people's imagination. And they began to call it the Lapin Agile. Gilles being the painter. So it was Gilles' rabbit, the one that he'd painted. And then it's only a short hop, isn't it, from Lapin Agile to Lapin Agile. So that's how it became called, that. At the very beginning of the 20th century, around about 1903-1904, it was frequented by people like Picasso and Modigliani, and there was a sign above the door which read Le premier devoir d'un honnête homme, the first duty of an honest man, et d'avoir un bon estomac, is to have a good stomach. But it wasn't just for its food that it was well known, because it built up quite a reputation for the entertainment that would take place there as well. There was a lot of singing, some of it quite bawdy. Poets would come in and read their work. Painters would come after a long day in the studio. And Suro describes some of them as she puts it rolling out at the end of a long night onto a nearby bench, or just stretching out on the ground beneath the trees. Dancers, she writes, who had seen better days, occasionally came up from the Moulin Rouge to sell opium. And, she continues, the Lapin Agile was where everyone went to be seen and to share their troubles, drown their sorrows, confess to secret romances or expound their particular theory of life. And then, also in Montmartre, was the Chat Noir, the Black Cat, another cafe, another cabaret, a bit avant-garde in tone, which attracted literary and artistic and musical performers to perform in an intimate little space, just consisting of two narrow rooms which held altogether about 30 guests, and whose promotional literature from the time gave a clue as to what to expect. Quote, the Chat Noir is the most extraordinary cabaret in the world. You mingle with the most famous men in Paris. You meet there with foreigners from every corner of the globe. It's the greatest success of the age. Come in, come in. On some evenings there'd be a display of one of the new forms of entertainment, namely shadow puppets. And the whole thing was presided over by the manager, one Aristide Brouin, 
who really was a larger-than-life character, whose picture you can still see today on some of Toulouse Lautrec's posters. He used to wear a blood-red silk shirt, a velvet jacket, long polished leather gaiters, and a broad-brimmed felt hat. He was very much the master of the bawdy song, nicely described by the writer Edouard Goncourt, who saw him in action in 1892 and wrote the following. What he sang before the society women who were there was quite indescribable. This ignoble lyricism consisted of foul adjectives, dirty words, purulent slang, the vocabulary of sordid brothels and clinics for venereal diseases. Somehow he got away with this. He seemed to be deemed to be so avant-garde that he couldn't say anything. And Edward Goncourt goes on to explain that although he was, as he put it, no prude, he really found much of this quite hard to take and really very inappropriate for some of the people in the audience. He wrote, To think that those society women, without the protection of a fan, without even a blush on their cheeks, listening to the man from close to, smiled and clapped their pretty aristocratic hands, at words no different from the obscene scribblings on walls from which they avert their eyes. A bit less bawdy, but just as well known today, is Le Moulin de la Galette, made famous by the fact that Renoir did a painting of it. Le Moulin de la Galette was also a place of entertainment. It had originally been a windmill, actually the last working windmill in Montmartre, and the owner, perhaps realising that the days when it would turn him a profit were going to be numbered, decided he would add what's known as a ganguette, a little dance hall, onto the side, and he and his wife would try and run that as a business. This began in 1834, proved very popular, particularly because his wife baked plates of round biscuits to serve on Sunday afternoons, and this, plus the music and the entertainment, meant that people were willing to come up the hill from Paris for an afternoon out. Sounds quite a lot more genteel than some of the other places I've talked about, and it's been captured forever in the Renoir painting The Bal du Moulin de la Galette, Dance at the Moulin de la Galette. It was decorated in the evenings with strings of coloured lights, and an eye was kept on the sort of entertainment which was provided. It said that the owner would not allow the can-can in his establishment because he thought that was too rowdy. If the can-can wasn't allowed, the farandole certainly was, an exuberant dance in which rings of people would all dance together, to the music played by an orchestra. It wasn't exactly sedate, there were lots of brass instruments, and it said that the dancing would start at three o'clock and go on till eleven at night. You paid four sous to get in, and then you could dance quadrilles and polkas and waltzes all afternoon and into the evening. Perhaps the most famous today, at least, of all these places is the Moulin Rouge, which originally opened in 1889 on the Boulevard de Clichy. It wasn't a windmill, it was just built to look like one, and it had an enormous dance floor with galleries all around so that people could stand and watch. And this was the place where the can-can was very popular. There were those who found it a bit immoral, with its exuberance and its high kicking, but in fact some of the best-known dancers won people over. And before long, it had spread to many other dance halls all across Montmartre. Some of the dancers became real personalities in Montmartre. Everybody knew them, and they went by their nicknames. So one was called La Goulou, which translates as the glutton, although apparently originally her nickname was Vide Bouteille, which means the bottle emptier, because she used to go around picking up clients' glasses and finishing their drinks for them. She was quite into self-publicity, was often photographed, striking an audacious pose, 
so that she could have the picture reproduced onto what I suppose were business cards, really, to give out to clients. A description I saw in one of the guidebooks certainly evokes her personality. All her poses, it said, evoked her profession, her provocative nature and her contempt for conventions. Some of the other personalities in the more marked of the day were the artists, up-and-coming artists, some of whom became very famous later, but who, when they arrived, were very short of money and had to just find the shabbiest, cheapest housing going. One Pablo Picasso would be a good example of that, for Montmartre is where he lived when he first came to Paris. He found a room in 1899 in a rickety building, which was said to contain 12 artist studios and perhaps some 30 rooms in total, a building with cracked window panes and battered woodwork, damp walls, smelling of mildew and cats, but where he took a studio right at the top of the building so that he could look out over the rooftops of Paris. Sue Rowe describes that too, writing, quote, The whole building was unbearably hot in summer and freezing in winter. There was no heating, no lighting, no running water other than a scaly indoor fountain on the ground floor and sanitation consisted of a reeking hole in the ground in a cubbyhole with a broken door shared by everyone. There was a concierge who always had a bowl of soup ready for anyone who had reached starvation point. But however unlikely it sounds, it was here that Picasso painted one of his early works, which was one of the first to become famous, namely Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. So many artists settled in this area, as well as Picasso and Renoir and Toulouse-Lautrec, whom we've already mentioned. There were, for example, Vincent van Gogh, who, among many other paintings, also did quite a few of the Moulin de la Galette. Edouard Manet lived here too, and it was in Montmartre that he painted his famous Olympia, which caused such a scandal. More about that in the artist episode. A bit later on, the painter Salvador Dali came to Paris in 1929, and he too had a studio in Montmartre. It really was in the 19th and early 20th century, the very centre of artistic Paris. It's sometimes a little hard to imagine that now because it's so very busy. But one place that will definitely help you to get back in time and realise what it was really like is the museum called the Musée de Montmartre, which is tucked away in a little road called Rue Corteau, a pretty cobbled street, which is only a minute or two's walk from the Place du Tête, but which is already much quieter. It too was once an artist studio, a place where many famous artists lived and worked, Renoir, for example, and Modigliani, but which is today just a lovely building in a beautiful garden with lots to see inside. Renoir's biographer described the garden as it was in the painter's day, but his description actually still reads quite true today. Here's an extract from it. A huge lawn of unmown grass, dotted with poppies and daisies. Beyond, a beautiful walk, planted with tall trees, and behind this, an orchard, a kitchen garden, and some bushy shrubs. And if you go to the end of the garden, behind the house, you get a lovely view over the Montmartre vineyard, and you can see the Lapin Agile nightclub, which is still there and still open today. Renoir lived for many years in this building, and it was where he painted the Moulin de la Galette, which to him was just the place that he went dancing every Saturday, and he also painted many other paintings, for example, La Balançoire, the Swing, and Le Jardin de la Rue Corteau, so the garden at Rue Corteau, this very garden that I've just described. Another painter who lived in this building 
was the female artist Suzanne Valadon, who arrived in 1912 and whose studio has been recreated in the building so that if you go to the museum today, you can have a look round it and really get a flavour of what life was like for an artist living here in this very unique atmosphere in the early 20th century. It's a crowded little room full of mucky painting palettes, half-finished works, not much furniture, just paintings propped up here, there and everywhere. And it really gives you the flavour of perhaps the obsessive ways in which some of these people lived practically in poverty, just so that they could keep creating their art. Round the museum, you can see a whole number of things. Lots of old photos of Montmartre, some paintings, some drawings. There's an exhibition on the cafes and dance halls of the area, where you can see, for example, the original sign to the Lapin Agile, and see lots more paintings and posters of some of these well-known venues. There's a room on shadow pictures, which shows some examples and shows you how they were made. Lots of information on some of the colourful figures of the heyday in Montmartre, on, for example, Aristide Bruant, he who sang the raucous songs to the posh ladies, and exhibits about the famous dancers. A whole exhibition which explains how it was that the sleepy little village which Montmartre had been became, in the 19th century, the centre of bohemian and artistic activity. A place of popular entertainment, a community of artists and everything that made it the very unique place that it was. The writer Stephen Clarke, in his book Paris Revealed, gives a little glimpse of Montmartre as it was by describing it as, quote, a hill in the countryside where artists came for inspiration, fresh air and cheap booze. In the 1950s, Sylvia Plath went to visit, climbed up towards Sacré-Cœur and wrote of the, quote, Shops which were dark and stenchful holes and reeked of garlic and cheap tobacco. And she goes on to describe how when she got to the top, a man asked if he could cut out a silhouette of her. And as this was being done, a crowd gathered round to watch, which, as she explained, was exactly what the artist had presumably been hoping for. So that's it then, Montmartre. Home to Sacré-Cœur, at integral part of the Paris skyline an area really quite unlike any other area in Paris, somewhere with so many connections to the art and entertainment for which Paris became world famous. Today, a busy, yes, possibly frantic area, where you can get lost in 21st century tourism, but where you'll actually always find remnants of the Paris that you've always imagined, the red umbrellas, the little cafe tables, the cobbled streets, the little square. Definitely somewhere not to miss. And leading on from this week's episode, I'm proposing next week to do an episode on Paris in the Belle Epoque, that 40-year period from the end of the Communard uprising to the beginning of World War I, the 40 years that really, when people looked back on it, seemed to have been a golden age full of art and music and entertainment, an age in which lots of progress was made, and an era which gave us some of the grandest buildings in the whole of Paris. For example, the opera the Grand Palais, the Petit Palais, some of Paris's best-known original Art Deco cafes, and, of course, of course, the Eiffel Tower. So, I hope you'll be able to join me next week to hear about some of those things. And meanwhile, I'd just like to thank you very much for listening this week, un grand merci, and to wish you goodbye. Au revoir. <laughs>